0: this week there's been a lot of ideas, both sort of physical and philosophical, flowing through my mind. So I hope you'll kind of bear with me as I do my best to tie them all together. First, a quick update. So I mentioned before this post-workout meditation file that I've been putting together. I made another update to it. So for one thing, I took out the um, subliminal kind of messaging and made it much louder because I found that there was really no kind of evidence scientifically or anecdotally that it was really doing much good so I wanted to make that much louder so that you can actually hear the affirmations that are being suggested I've also sort of changed it a little bit based on an idea that I heard while reading this book it's something new I've been reading an audiobook actually because that's how I read most of my books It's called The Master and Its Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, and the main idea of the book seems to be how the two hemispheres of the brain interrelate. And one of the ideas that really struck me was the idea that the right hemisphere of the brain is better at collecting and making use of new data, whereas the left hemisphere of the brain is better at dealing with things that it already knows. Well, the right hemisphere of the brain is accessed via the left ear and vice versa. So it kind of made sense to me Mm -hmm. that you first put in the messaging something new or somewhat unfamiliar into the left ear to get that accessing the right brain and then repeat it again in the other ear so that you get that kind of... It's a reinforcement of the ideas, but a reinforcement in a way that is designed to work with the way our brains work. Hopefully it works. It's it's sort of an ongoing thing. I know it's evolved a few times now. I'll put the link to the current file as it stands in the description of this podcast. Okay, so now on to the actual talking points I wanted to get into in this episode. One of the things I generally have been doing so far has been taking a philosophical concept and then trying to relate it to physical development. I want to try to flip that on its head a little bit today and sort of sort of see what happens. One of the or rather two of the body parts I've been really working on trying to find interesting ways to develop and stimulate are biceps and delts. Not really sure why that is. It's just interested me lately and I've tried some new kind of techniques. Um, they're kind of interesting body parts that sticking points seem to be somewhere in the middle. And they have kind of interesting weak points. Okay, let's start with biceps. So there's a few ideas that I've been playing with in terms of bicep development lately. And it's quite fun to play with these. One of them is pre-fatiguing the forearms. Because I find that the forearms can be kind of a weak spot. So Zotman curls, if you've ever tried those, can be a kind of good way to do it. Although those... They do have a downside, which is that you're going to wind up using a relatively light weight. So what they are is you do a regular dumbbell type curl. Then you uh, internally rotate your your palms at the top of the movement. And then uh, I guess do a controlled negative portion of it. Now that really puts a lot of, gives a lot of work on the negative portion to your forearms. But, like I say, because there's so much strain on it, you're probably going to do a quite small amount of weight that will not do much for your bicep. And that tends to be the case, actually, with a lot of movements that stimulate the forearms. Hammer curls are okay for those as well, and, and they, you, can, you can do them with good amount of weight. Another idea that I played with is kettlebells, and so using a, again, relatively light kettlebell, I'll hold it by the handle and do a curl, keeping the kettlebell out. So you've got this weight kind of at the at the uh, contracted position that's hanging off. It's sort of an extension of your arm, making it harder out there. Those ones I find to be killer because I get a good a uh, um, contraction on the bicep itself, but the forearm's also getting nuked there. Uh, another interesting one that I've played with also involves kettlebells. I I played with this one on back day because I was using lifting straps. And what I did was I hooked the, the, the lifting straps through the handle of a kettlebell and then kind of held on to them and did a curl like that so what it essentially wound up being is very similar to the kind of movement you'd get from a close grip easy bar curl except that because I'm using the straps that you can put your wrists at whatever comfortable position you want whereas with easy bars of course you're limited but I actually do enjoy the uh, close grip easy bar curls because your wrists are going to be pre-supinated so they're going to be in that position where you can get a really good contraction on the biceps so I have done that one as well when i'm using an easy bar i like doing a i guess what you'd call it wrist manipulation the the goal is to sort of keep the keep your hands parallel with the floor so you're going to be kind of moving your wrist as you're curling up now by doing that you're again stimulating the forearm but it's going to be keeping gravity working against you rather than if you uh, were to keep your wrists kind of stationary, then the force of gravity would be less and less. So this is kind of a cool way I find. I saw a variation of this called waiter's curls I think, and with that you're doing it with a dumbbell, holding one dumbbell with two hands. So again it's a very close grip and you'd be uh, manipulating your wrists the same kind of way. As far as delt training I'm always looking for interesting ways to stimulate them, but there's limitations I've recently come back to a lot of pressing specifically barbell pressing which I believe I've always had a problem actually because my form was bad and I credit to Athlean X he did a video where he was talking about comparing dumbbell presses to barbell presses and he actually demonstrated how to do the barbell press optimally And I was doing the exact thing that he mentioned was wrong with it, which was having my grip too wide rather than having it almost somewhat in front of my elbows naturally. But anyway, so uh, yeah, I've been doing that and then really enjoying that. That's been a great way to stimulate my delts. Various laterals are always a winner too, especially doing drop sets. Now, I will say drop sets are kind of a... that I always thought were kind of a foregone conclusion as being good as far as hypertrophy. Supposedly, there's some contradictory evidence. You know, there's always new science coming out debunking one thing or another, and it's ever-changing. That being said, I don't know of a way to practically both be able to use relatively heavy weights and then have enough time under tension to get the pump that they're saying is related to hypertrophy and the uh, yeah the time under increased time under tension that you can't get with heavy weights drop sets are the only way I know to practically do that I shouldn't say that they're not the only way they're my favorite way to do it there's other ways you can do I guess mechanical drops and such things as that so practically speaking I really like using drops a lot for lateral movements for my shoulders but really when it all comes down to it whether it's biceps, whether it's delts, whether it's really any other body part, there's a few principles that I've found have been constant. And those principles are to feel the desired muscle working, to lock it down the rest of your body so you're isolating that muscle, which is kind of part of that, keeping continuous tension on the muscle, and moving it through as great a range of motion as possible in the specific position you're in, I guess, and uh, progressively increasing the difficulty. Now, if we want to move these same kind of principles into the world of philosophical or psychological development, mental strength, I think we can see where that can play in too. It comes down to pushing yourself up against uncomfortable places and strengthening yourself to be able to deal with them. One of those ideas I actually talked about in a fairly recent episode where I talked about the boredom technique from the book The Jealousy Cure where you take an uncomfortable thought and you repeat it over and over again. So I guess what you're doing in this case is you're, you're taking a feeling and trying to translate it into a thought because that's how we feel. It's not really practical to try to do this technique with a feeling. It's better to take a thought or an idea. So try to realize what this idea is that's coming to you. And you're trying to kind of intercept that before it becomes an emotion. So you're trying to identify what this thought is that you're having that makes you uncomfortable, and then repeat this thought to yourself over and over and over again. And it's kind of the same idea. You're basically taking something that you can't currently deal with and teaching yourself to deal with it. And I do have to say that being able to be more in control of our emotions is probably one of the greatest, if you want to call it, superpowers that as humans we can develop. At least that's my opinion. Um, There was a book that I've been very interested in lately. You all know it. It's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And... I think its message has been lost a lot on us lately. I, it was uh, Stevenson wrote it, and it's it's fascinating when you really think about it. So what he's talking about, this Mister Hyde, it's it's the dark side of your personality. It's passions. It's these impulses inside of you that are immoral and taboo, and you you know are not. Good for others or for yourself even in the long term. But there seems to be something in our society these days telling us if it feels good, then to not engage in it is being oppressive. And I think that's a recipe to long-term unhappiness. Certainly not mental strength. I'm a firm believer that self-control and self-discipline is extremely strengthening to character. This Jekyll and Hyde business got me to thinking about the alter ego concept that I brought up in one of the previous episodes as well. Like I said, there's a lot of ideas kind of melding together here. And it occurred to me, or it made me question, if what this alter ego idea was doing was letting loose the Jekyll because the moral of the story and I think it's a good one of Jekyll and Hyde is that if you give in to these passions too frequently if you don't control them or contain them enough they can take you over and they can become part of the quote-unquote real you. So are these alter egos potentially damaging? Well, I thought and thought and thought, and in the end, I I think it's something different. Actually, I think it's closer to what you might think of as the Clark Kent slash Superman dichotomy. Both are good characters, but they're different. And and actually, it relates to another idea I was talking about before about when to stand and when to sit, or in other words, when to reevaluate your beliefs and and your values even, and when to stand up for them and protect them. And this is kind of where I see the dichotomy between Clark Kent and Superman is Clark Kent would be the one who he's very humble. He's almost childlike. He is learning and reassessing without prejudice. Whereas Superman is standing up for what, is valuable and precious to him and worth standing up for and i think that the superman one would be a good alter ego for performance and, and for in the gym you're pushing yourself it's an odd one because he's more about sheer intensity whereas the the clark kent side of it is would be more on the kind of recovery when it comes to physical development he's more on the recovery end of it and expanding and, and taking the lessons learned from having stood up and using those to grow his character. So as a whole, we become this much better-rounded person. And so I suppose it's worth noting that in this analogy, it's far better to spend more time in Clark Kent mode than Superman mode. Now, I don't think it can be understated that Superman is sort of the ultimate protector. And this, I think, is a hugely important role of men specifically. Women have it too, especially when it concerns children. But it kind of relates back to something I was talking about very early on in the podcast when I was talking about masculinity. And I talked about something that was bothering me at the time and I couldn't quite put my finger on exactly why it bothered me, just that it bothered me, which was that of wimps really and why wimps irritate me so much and I think that thinking through all these things this mesh of ideas kind of helped bring an understanding to me because it's not something that I think I ever put deliberate thought into oh I should be annoyed by wimps but why is it why and don't get me wrong I'm not saying this is an excuse I'm saying it to understand (laughs) because it might sound like an excuse that's why I'm preempting that I think it Actually comes from a little bit of biology, natural human relevance and partly to do with roles in the family, which I think have been clear are also very important to me. When it comes to the family, women are tasked with with bearing children and nurturing children to a large extent, and a lot of the... Well, they they nurse children, and the sort of natural order of things, if you want to say that, is that women play a large role in protection of the child from the time the child's born until the child can take care of themselves. In terms of finding a mate, it makes sense that a woman would want somebody that is responsible enough that she doesn't have to take care of this other adult as well as the child. Rather, it makes sense she would want somebody who can take care of her so that she can take care of the child. Now, I admit that some people will probably find that sexist, but I I know that's the way the world is. I mean these days people think that evolution is homophobic because we didn't evolve to be able to be able to you know reproduce uh with with one gender and and people think that you know biology is is transphobic because people who think that they are a gender that they are biologically not um have been oppressed by their own biology so i all this to say It might sound sexist for me to say that women probably naturally want a man to be capable and responsible, but reality is reality, folks. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. And of course, it's just my interpretation of things, you know. I I don't claim to be an expert on all things natural. I'm just saying that this might be a reason why I've found it's frustrating to see certain in society trying to feminize men part of that I know is that I really empathize and I really feel bad for other people young people who are falling into these traps being laid I truly feel the role of being a mentor is extremely important for men. That means knowing how to encourage young men. Not shaming them for being men, but helping them, guiding them, encouraging them. So when young men are being told that being a man is toxic and they must be more like a woman, I feel really bad because I think they're being led down a wrong path by the wrong people. And I think it's also worth noting that if you suppress your natural mode of being. Now don't get me wrong, that's not the same as controlling your impulses. And I think there's actually, that this is an interesting point to bring up. I'm gonna, let me just waddle through this one in my mind. Suppressing your natural mode of being, I think is going to result in catastrophe. And reports seem to indicate this is the case. So when men try to virtue signal and call themselves, uh, what, do they, what do they call themselves, male feminists or whatever that is, what tends to happen is that at first it might work and women are like, oh, he's so woke and whatever, he's, he's aware, he cares about female concerns. But eventually this act runs thin and... She's not happy because she's gotten herself in a relationship with a wimp and he's not happy because he's acting like a wimp, which is counter to what he wants. So what happens? Well, if he starts rebelling as such by acting like a man, she becomes upset that now suddenly he's a different person. But she didn't like the person he was in the first place, even if she doesn't fully quite know that. So I think... You trying to su- suppress masculinity is a recipe for disaster. Now, what's the difference between that and what we were talking about before, which is, I guess, if you want to say, suppressing impulses or controlling impulses? Well, let's just let's just avoid vagary and talk about specifics here. So, extreme example here: rape. Now. If everybody just did what they feel like, because it's oppressive to constrain your impulses, there would be a lot of men going out and raping women. Not because they go around thinking, I want to rape that person, but because they walk around thinking, I want to have sex right now, and there's a beautiful woman. Now, that's not the same as masculinity. The impulse to be violent when you see something you don't like. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about masculinity. Those are bad impulses. Now, the reason I don't like the term toxic masculinity is because it implies that those are masculine traits. I think I would be... I would be naive to say that those tendencies, violence, say, and rape and those kinds of things, don't tend to appear with men more so than women. Of course they do. But evil tendencies can come to people no matter what gender they are. So I think that needs to be separated. I don't think it's helpful to tell a man that for example, if you check out a woman that looks attractive, that's you being toxic. I don't think it's helpful to tell a man that holding a door open for a woman to show some respect is being toxic or being, what, what do they call it, virtuous sexism, whatever they call it. I think there is a difference. I stand by it that certain impulses Are best controlled but trying to tell men that standing up for themselves is being toxic is a misstep of course there is the distinct possibility that I'm wrong and if I'm wrong I'm wrong actually I really like the philosophical idea of trying to prove yourself wrong if there's something you really believe try to prove it wrong at least that's a way to proceed if what you want is truth I would say the number of people in the world who actually go through this process of trying to prove themselves wrong I could probably count on my hand I think it's that uncommon for people to do and I myself don't do it often it's an interesting balance to to do that and to also incorporate the idea that I was talking about before, which is to find out if something is true by proceeding as if it is. Like anything and like the identities I was talking about, it's knowing when to do which. So there's a also a, a very real possibility that as I've contemplated these things and as I continue to contemplate them, I'll come back in a in a further episode and tell you that I was wrong about something but at the moment this is what I think is these are the things that I think are important and valuable and worth preserving while the year is wrapping up we're almost finished 2019 I only started this podcast a few months ago so even though I'm I believe about 23 episodes in it would be a condensed season. I'll probably do one more before the end of the year and call that a wrap to the first season. I do want to get into some of the things that maybe have been missed or left behind. I've been reviewing all the episodes I've gotten about halfway through because I want to see if there's any areas where I could... where I I. I either didn't address something that perhaps I should have or if my feelings on something have changed since then. So I'll see you next time. That's it for now.